What's up, everybody? Are you tuning in to the Challenge USA on CBS? Well, tune in to me, Tyson Apostle, as I break down each and every episode with my co-host, Amelia Wedemeyer. I'm also a contestant on the show, which gives you all the insider scoop. Amelia, how stoked are you to do this? Tyson, I'm freaking excited. I cannot wait to sit my butt down every single week to watch the show, then come here and recap it with you on the Ringer Reality TV podcast. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. All right, it is Wednesday, July 20th. If you're a fan of superhero movies or you spent any time on Twitter a few years ago, you're probably familiar with something called the Snyder Cut. This was a four-hour director's cut of the 2017 DC Comics movie Justice League. It came out on HBO Max in the spring of 2021. Yes, a four-hour version of a movie that had already come out and famously flopped when it was first in theaters. How did that happen? It was something of a joke in Hollywood because Warner Brothers and its parent company, Warner Media, had agreed to give Zack Snyder, the filmmaker, tens of millions of dollars, essentially because the internet told them to. There was a massive online movement, we were told. Release the Snyder Cut. Release the Snyder Cut. Fans supposedly really wanted this. They were aggressive and some say abusive towards a lot of the executives at Warner Brothers and elsewhere because they were so passionate about this property. The Warner Media leadership, remember, it had just been taken over by AT&T, and the CEO of Warner Media, Jason Kylar, had no experience running a movie studio. He felt he really needed something to bring attention to HBO Max, its new streaming service. Friends reunion was delayed, COVID was hampering production. This was something that would get a lot of attention and that they could put on the streaming service with minimal effort, they thought. Just some reshoots, a little bit of tinkering, some special effects, and let Zack Snyder run wild. So Warners ended up giving him about $100 million to redo the movie thanks to this massive online movement. But what if that movement was mostly bullshit? There have been suspicions at Warner Brothers for years and throughout Hollywood that the Snyder fan army wasn't really all that real. Similar to questions we had about all those social media accounts that were attacking Amber Heard during the Johnny Depp trial. Ironically, Amber Heard was in Justice League. Just this week, there was a fascinating article in Rolling Stone revealing the extent of the accounts that bullied Warner Brothers. I mean, these accounts were merciless. They specifically went after two execs, Jeff Johns and John Berg, who, according to the article, Snyder himself had promised he might destroy on social media if he didn't get his way. So I asked Tatiana Siegel, the author of the piece, a senior writer at Rolling Stone and a host of the Ankler Hot Seat podcast, to come on the show to explain the bot armies how they influenced the Snyder Cut, 
how they essentially brought a studio to its knees and bullied it into making this movie, and what that says about the future of decision-making in Hollywood. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Tatiana Siegel. Tatiana wrote a great piece for Rolling Stone this past week that gets into a question that I have had for many years, which is the power of the bot armies. The bot armies have become a thing in Hollywood because the studios are terrified of the reaction to trailers, to early screenings, to anything that they put out there among the, quote, social media mobs or whatever you want to call them. And this is a perfect example of the absolute apex of that trend because this movie, The Snyder Cut, was made essentially because the internet told Warner Brothers to make it. And now we find out that how many of those accounts, how many of those, quote, fans were total BS? You actually, Tatiana, got into this deep and really got a report that Warner Brothers commissioned two reports, actually. What did those reports say? Matt, it was actually not Warner Brothers who commissioned the reports, but Warner Media. And that kind of is... Oh, the parent company, the parent company. Yeah. And in fact, anybody I talked to, Warner Brothers, nobody had ever seen the reports. They were sort of... um, Some people didn't even believe they existed. It was something that Warner Media kept like completely under lock and key. Because they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure out where this vitriol and movement released the Snyder Cut, released the Snyder Cut. They couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And this report suggests, at least, doesn't confirm, but suggests that Zack Snyder himself may have been involved. The findings of the report that I obtained said 13%, and in another part of the report, it said 17% of the accounts were fake that were involved in any Snyder Cut, Snyderverse um, conversation. And to some people that might be like, doesn't sound like a lot, but that actually is a huge number considering that like the normal range of what you should see of bot activity is three to 5% on any given trending topic. So this is at least three times if not more, what would be considered normal. And if you're talking a million tweets for, you know, any one hashtag on a given day, which happened in the release of Snyder Cut fandom movement, that's what, 130,000, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot of... uh, Well, and, and the point is that that can seed a movement. You know, once you have that kind of bot activity out there, trying to create trending topics, creating, you know, uh, fan armies that do then become real people getting involved. Yeah. And I think that is, uh, that's what, what we had here because, you know, it was unbelievable. I would tweet things about Warner Brothers and then all of a sudden I'd have five people responding. What you really should be writing about is release the cider cut. Oh yeah, I got the same thing. And that's actually, I remember when I was doing the Kevin Shujahara reporting, there would be like, it, it struck me as odd at the time that in the comments, there would be things like, now do this executive and then hashtag release the Snyder Cut. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, that's kind of random that these fans seem to be, um, you know, involved in and in, in invested in this topic, but okay. So, so what evidence do you have that directly indicates Zack Snyder, the filmmaker of the Justice League was involved in creating this internet wave to get Warner Brothers to spend almost nine figures on his 
Snyder Cut? So I have a source who, a very good source, who says that Zach, back in 2016, um, hired a digital media company to help juice the fan engagement. And it was because at that point in time, Batman versus Superman had been savaged by critics and also by the DC fandom, which really rejected the film and was very vocal about it online. He denies this, but uh, that he ever engaged a company. Now, by the way, that is not probably totally nefarious to do to to engage a digital, but it's uncommon. I, I can't find another example of a director doing this. Well, it's not a, it's not uncommon for studios to do this. I mean, that's exactly. sort of part of the marketing campaign. We saw it with Minions. We saw it with all these other big studio tentpoles where they do engage agencies to help manage or stoke the conversation online. But this is a filmmaker going rogue in many cases against his own studio to try to bully them into something allegedly. Yes. And so then for SnyderCut.com, which becomes the sort of hub of the Snyderverse movement, it begins or it's registered back in 2017. It's unknown who registered it because whoever registered it did it anonymously under Privacy Protect Service. And at some point, that service lapsed. You know, maybe somebody didn't pay the credit card, whatever. And you can see, or I was able to see, that it was a particular person who owned the domain. This person is not listed on the website. This person happens to have an ad agency called myagency.com. And that Agency is now defunct, but if you go back to the archived version of its website, it touts such services as providing cheap, instant avatar traffic to your movement. So, I mean, it's possible there was somebody else who had the means to hire, a, you know, an expensive agency to do this, but, you know, that, that's kind of where it looks suspect. <laughs> Does the website also say Batman versus Superman forever? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it does not. But uh, <laughs> past clients include. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because, you know, this is a new front in what is a long, long battle. You know, a lot of filmmakers will, in throughout Hollywood history, will take to the community and stoke little conversations about what the Warner Brothers or Universal or whatever studios should be doing. They will go out and do interviews to kind of get their fans on their side to try to pressure a studio into doing a sequel. And, you know, this is a long, there's a long history of this, but now we've got this internet enabled, algorithmically amplified bot army that can be deployed. We saw it in the Amber Heard versus Johnny Depp case where there was very strong evidence that at least some of these bots were stoked by the Johnny Depp side or people that are close to him. And that was never confirmed, but it's something that's now out there. And I talk to lawyers and, and marketing people and say, yeah, this is part of the game now. And if I'm someone like Michael Bay or, you know, Jordan Peele's got a movie this weekend where like, if the critics aren't there for you, uh, maybe you just take matters into your own hands. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. I think that was sort of the most chilling takeaway from my Rolling Stone piece is that two people said to me, this is precisely a blueprint of how to weaponize a fan base. Um, because in this case, it it wasn't just for, you know, 
hey, everybody go see the movie or, you know, make this movie trend or get the, it, it was to get this movie made. And if executives didn't fall in line, they suddenly were attacked on uh, social media. I know the Warner people sort of feel like they were a little vindicated by this story. Some of them do. Uh, because it got into a lot of the machinations behind the scenes and what was going on and how they were trying to deal with this. But a lot of the Warner people don't look great here, especially the CEO, Jason Kylar, who was essentially bowing to this army and giving Zack Snyder whatever he wanted, sometimes opposite of what his own executives were advising him to do. And, you know, it, it turns out that maybe all these fans weren't actually real people because the audience for the Snyder Cut on HBO Max was not as large as some of the other DC movies, right? Correct. And in fact, it was like for all of that noise and all of that, you know, news cycle, at the end of the day, it ended up either somewhere between sixth and eighth that year in terms of how it performed on HBO Max. Movies like Suicide Squad did much better. Wonder Woman 1984, which had actually opened a month before the, the calendar year 2021, did much better. I tried to watch it. I got 10 minutes in. It, it's not good. It, and <laughs> a a four-hour version of a bad movie is not better than a two-and-a-half-hour version of a bad movie. Oh, Matt, be careful. They're going to come out <laughs> I know, you. I know, exactly. <laughs> so the uh, yeah, them and, and the Johnny Depp bots, they can join a movement together and take me down. The... The behind the scenes on this was crazy because Warner's was freaking out. I mean, I remember covering this stuff as it happened and some of the death threats they were getting, executives getting you know pictures of themselves decapitated on Twitter and the head of, of who was it that deactivated her account because of the online abuse? Diane Nelson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, it, it's just crazy. And I think that they implicitly blame Zack Snyder for this. Do you get that feeling? Absolutely. Um, I would say that of the 20 plus people I talked to who were involved with these two movies and the ensuing drama, um, believed that Zack Snyder was manipulating his fan base behind the scenes and believed that he was working in tandem with Ray Fisher, um, who sort of became the conduit for a lot of the negative tweeting um, of some of these executives. Ray Fisher, who plays Cyborg in the movie and has had his own battle with Warner Brothers over some of the treatment that he says he was subjected to when Joss Whedon was brought in to finish the movie because Warner's had kind of lost confidence in, uh, in Zack Snyder. And he also had a personal tragedy that he stepped aside from the movie for. But that was a whole separate drama on this movie where they, you know, Gal Gadot and Ray Fisher and some of the others claim that Joss Whedon was abusive to them. And, you know, I just feel like at this point, this movie has become you know, one of the, it's like an albatross around Warner's neck. They just want to pretend this movie goes away. What do you think the takeaway is here for studios dealing with this new reality? From what studio executives I've talked to about this particular phenomenon, it is something that they find, at first they found it to be like a curiosity, like, hey, how do we harness the power of a movie's fandom uh, the way Zack Snyder was doing in 2018, 2019? But now people that I talk to at other studios, at competing studios said that this is actually kind of scary what happened. It is. Um, it doesn't mean they won't try this 
you know, it's you're kind of playing with the devil when you engage in these kinds of dark arts on social media. But for studios and filmmakers, it's probably worth it in some cases, especially when you've got a problematic property. And the DC movies for many years were considered problematic, especially the ones that Snyder had a lot of involvement in. Um, you go into a detail in the story about some of the early cuts of Justice League where it was deemed a total disaster and they were freaking out about how to deal with this. So Yes, I'm know, told there was not a dry eye in the house when it first screamed. <laughs> and, not, and not for good reasons. <laughs> and not because they were wrapped up in the Superman's mother uh, conversation in the movie. So, Correct. Yeah, so, um, you know, so, so when you get into these situations where you as a head of a studio have spent $250 million on a movie and you're in that screening and it's just terrible. I mean, that is the worst feeling you can have. And it does it does start getting getting you thinking about how to manage the reaction because these movies, you know, Marvel's dealing with it a little bit right now or some of the fans haven't loved the last couple of movies. Now, Marvel's in a totally different place and I think its fans give them the benefit of the doubt. But the DC fans can be kind of unrelenting if they don't like something. Correct. Um, and I do remember being at the premiere for Batman versus Superman, which uh, Zach directed in 2016, and being told that we were not allowed to um, tweet anything about the premiere until two days later when, you know, like they did not want any buzz because, you know, that movie ended up having like a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. It's amazing. And then they, <laughs> they end up spending almost $100 million to essentially allow a uh, you know a do over and give this director the opportunity to you know go nuts on it. What was the craziest thing about this reporting that you discovered? To me, the the thing that was really insane is that a he did a or he allegedly did a shoot in his backyard without following COVID protocols nor union guidelines. He sort of like came back with like a half denial on that or didn't quite answer the question, which he did in a lot of cases. Um, but this is when like nobody is like leaving their home and it happened in his backyard. So that was crazy. And then the idea that, you know, people told me that he sent an editor over to the studio after things like had kind of gone bad with him and Warner brothers, he sent, he sends an editor over to the studio to retrieve hard drives of the film, which is they deemed it stolen property and the studio security got involved. And this is one of their marquee filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's insane. It's not, it's not that they, it's not that they think that Zack Snyder is going to like go nuts and steal their footage and put it online. But when you have footage like that in the hands of someone outside the studio, you have no idea where it will end up. He could yeah. have his car stolen with the footage inside. He could have a, a crazy cousin come over and decide that, you know, he wants to put it online or something like that's insane. And by the way, there were, it didn't make it into my report, but there were, I was told that he did release things online that were unauthorized like key art so you would have posters that were um that he was not allowed to do in the run-up to release the snyder cut right. so uh you know suddenly there was this mysterious um you know towering times square ad 
which was like release the Snyder cut. By the way, no one knows who paid for that. Allegedly, it was the fans, but there was no Kickstarter campaign that you can point to. So must have been one really rich fan who could afford like a $50,000 a day Times Square billboard. <laughs> Elon Musk. Have you talked to Elon Musk? This seems like something he would do on Twitter and decide to just uh, screw around with Warners. No, uh, it's it's crazy. The whole thing is crazy. And it really, the, the big takeaway from this story that I got is how much power public people have over their employers these days, because the balance of power has completely shifted. You know, the early days of Hollywood, the studios controlled the lives of the stars, told them exactly what to do, you know, managed their lifestyle, got them girlfriends, boyfriends, when it was suitable for the publicity. Now, you know, you talk to these studio people, they are terrified of what the big public star is going to do on social media. And they have to appease them if they want them to post, if they want them to say positive things. And in this case, this is a filmmaker who absolutely used the power of his fans, both real and imagined, to get a studio to do exactly what he wanted. Yeah. As it was described to me is you had an entitled director who felt entitled to get a do-over on a $300 million movie that had flopped to get another $100 million to make it. And he shook down the studio, as it was phrased to me. All right, before we wrap up, those are my takeaways. What are your takeaways from reporting this story? I mean, like, to me, like, everybody has a different idea of what the takeaway was. But mm -hmm. for me, it's like he threatened two executives and five days late to destroy them on social media. And by the way, he didn't really deny it to me. That, that to me, is like, that's where the threat really works. And nobody thinks Jason Kylar behaved properly here. He, but, but there was also a business imperative too. He needed something, anything for HBO max. Right. The friends reunion was delayed and all the other things he thought were going to be big lures were COVID impacted. And this was something that they could actually do. And even if it costs a ton of money, he had the budget. Correct. Correct. But people were aghast that he knew that bots were fueling the campaign against employees. Uh, like it wasn't just John Berg and Jeff Johns. It was Joanna Fuente, like people who were attacked, Walter Hamada, Toby Emmerich. These are employees of the studio, Joanna Fuente, like attacked mercilessly online. And they knew it were that Warner Media, not Warner Brothers, knew that these people were not all real people and they did nothing. They didn't share it with them. And by the way, there was definitely at least one quietly settled litigation of an aggrieved party. An employee? Correct. Yes. Wow. Someone who was, was traumatized over all this. And by the way, Zach settled and he didn't deny that. He, he finally returned his footage after he settled with the studio in uh, three months after the movie finally opened. Wow. And now he's at Netflix making movies there. Amazing. All right. Tatiana Siegel, you can read her full report at Rolling Stone. It's called Fake Accounts Fueled the Snyder Cut Online Army. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right. We are back with the call sheet, my daily prediction. Craig, did you see the Netflix earnings yesterday? I did. Everybody's cheering today. The stock is up because Netflix didn't tank as badly as people thought they might. The prediction was that they would lose 2 million subscribers. They ended up losing just under a million 
subscribers. And it's like, you know, pop the champagne corks, uh, which I don't quite understand. The numbers still aren't great. I mean, Netflix was, <laughs> was a growth engine for many years, and now it's kind of a stagnation machine. Yeah, this just goes to show that the stock market is all just such a narrative people built. Like, they just tempered people's expectations, and now everybody's happy that they still took a loss. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of theories about whether they purposely underpredicted because of this exact thing. And what the market's really reacting to is not just these numbers, but the projection for next quarter that Netflix says it will gain a million subscribers rather than lose. So that would reverse two straight quarters of losses. And the market is saying, okay, you're getting back on your feet. You're doing what you need to do. And this is a return to growth. Even though, you know, you could look to a year ago, two years ago, this is a company that was growing at four or five, six million subscribers a quarter. And now they say they're going to gain a million. That gets me to my prediction. I'm not going to make a full prediction on what Netflix's next next quarter is going to look like, but I will make a prediction about what the U.S. and Canada market will be because that is a problem area for Netflix. Even this quarter, they lost 1.3 million subscribers in U.S. and Canada. And my prediction is that next quarter, those losses in the, the domestic market are going to increase. Uh, I, do, I just think the competition level and the the shift in the investment of resources that Netflix is making to the international content sector, it's going to impact. I don't know how much it will lose, but I think it's going to lose more than 1.3 million subs in the U.S. and Canadian market. doesn't mean it won't be made up elsewhere, but I think they have a problem in the domestic area. Is this content-based, like they don't have that many great shows or movies coming out soon, or are there kind of larger issues at play here? I think it's both. I mean, you look at this quarter, and Stranger Things is by far the biggest English-language show in the world, and it over-indexes in the U.S., obviously, because it's set here and made here. So if Netflix loses subs during a quarter in which Stranger Things was gigantic— uh, what's going to happen next quarter? Now, they do have those final episodes of Stranger Things in this quarter. So there was a reason for people to stay. But now there are a couple months where there's no Stranger Things if you've watched it. And it's, you know, they have some other stuff. The other, the other factor here is that there are macro things going on. I mean, the inflation numbers, people are looking twice at what they're spending you know, heading into a recession and people are doing more stuff outdoors. The pandemic era Netflix subscriber might be looking twice at what he or she is subscribing to now. So there are a lot of outside factors. I also think the competition level in the U.S. is just insane now. If you look at all these services, some of which are only domestic, things like Peacock and Hulu, it's just there's a lot to choose from. You know, I don't know. If, if I look at the first half of 2022 for Netflix, other than Stranger Things, what else has been a big hit? They had Inventing Anna which was a, yeah. a huge miniseries. Um, they've had some movies that have done well. Uh, the Adam Project was specifically pretty big for them. Because now they're going to have The Gray Man. They're going to have that Marilyn Monroe movie. They're going to have Cobra Kai. They're going to have The Crown, Dead to Me. Enola Holmes too. I don't even know if the first one was a hit. It was. It's the Millie Bobby Brown movie. Knives Out sequel. Yeah, we, we don't know exactly when that's coming. But yes, they do. They, listen, Netflix has great stuff. That's not the question. They've had great stuff and they have lost subs. So yeah. they have to have better stuff or they have to 
figure out how to you know get more subscribers through this advertising tier. But now they say that the ad tier isn't coming until 2023. So they've got this second half of the year to figure out until that comes. All right. That is today's episode. I want to thank Tatiana Siegel. And I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. And I want to thank you. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.